Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am officially starting season five of this podcast. Um, I've been doing this now for almost four years. January will be the fourth anniversary of the podcast, and I'm going to do something a little different this season, I guess, because normally I would be reading Kalantai's work in English translation, and I'll still be doing some of that. I think I still have some great pieces to read and discuss, but one of the things that I realize is that I've talked a lot about how we should not read Kalantai's work anachronistically, meaning we should not apply the sort of worldviews and opinions and thoughts and ideas that we have in 2022 to our readings of Kalantai's work, which was written in the late 19th or early 20th centuries. And so one of the ways that I hope to give you a little bit of context for just how radical Alexandra Kalantai really was, is to read some contemporaneous press reports about her. And I've done a lot of digging. I spent a lot of time in a big periodicals database here in the United States, but I've also found some articles about her in Spanish and German and French. And I really want to kind of give you a sense of how radical she appeared to the West when she was in power, particularly in her years as Commissar of Social Welfare, and then later in her role as ambassador to Norway, Mexico, and ultimately Sweden. And I think these articles are really funny because they are obviously taken from over 100 years ago in many cases. And they really give you a sense of the kinds of attitudes that Kalantai was up against, particularly as regards to the press and the kind of Western interpretation of what she stood for and why she was so prominent within the Bolshevik revolution and, and subsequently within the Soviet government. So the first piece that I'm going to read today is called Madame Kalantai, Heroine of the Bolsheviki Upheaval in Petrograd. And this piece appeared in January of 1918 in Current Opinion, which was a periodical in the United States that lasted between 1913 and 1925. And this little piece is a kind of reflection on Kalantai's role in the new Bolshevik government, which had just been formed. So this is literally January 1918. So the revolution is only a couple months old. So I'm going to read this piece in its entirety, and then if I have time, I'm going to spend a little time reflecting on it at the end. In general, I try to keep these episodes around 20 minutes, but it may be that this season, because of the nature of these pieces, my episodes are going to be maybe a little bit longer. Maybe I'll have a few or shorter ones, but I'm imagining that reading the pieces plus the commentary, they might get a little bit longer than the 20 minute mark. And I hope you will, you will forgive me, but hopefully these pieces will be really colorful and fun to listen to. So this one again is from January, 1918. 
There is much curiosity in the press of Europe on the subject of the exact age of that Madame Kolontai, who holds a cabinet portfolio in the Bolshevik government of Russia. The estimate of the Paris debat is 35, although this somewhat unfriendly interpreter of the now famous lady admits that she does not look it. She is a full-fledged member, apparently, of the Great Triumvirate, no critical decision being taken without her approval. Precisely as the real name of Trotsky is alleged to be Bronstein, or something like that, and Lenin is accused of being Ulyanov, Madame Kolontai is set down as really Frau or Fraulein Schwarzkopf, one of her ancestors being, it is said, a Jew. However, much inexact information about the lady has gotten into the papers, especially as she declines to reveal her age. There seems no doubt that she is legally divorced from the Kolontai whose name she has borne for a decade or so. She does not believe in marriage, according to the Swiss dailies, which know her well. Madame Kollontai first drew the attention of the Western world to her personality when she was but 27, her political or revolutionary debut having been made in Switzerland. She was discovered giving a series of conferences in Bern on the subject of the proletariat, with which her sympathy is marked and of which her comprehension averse the Gazette de Lausanne is subtle. She knows the Russian peasantry as few women of her apparent culture and refinement know it. Madame emerges in the character sketches of the Swiss dailies as a temperamental brunette. Indeed, the Lausanne daily goes so far as to say that to her audience, she often seemed on the verge of hysterics. She has that witch's eye, as the Italians say, a large, open, dark, and flashing eye, emitting something like a spark in moments of excitement. The brows are perfectly penciled and the lashes hang over heavily with effects almost oriental. The abundant and chestnut hair is well combed. She is of a very elegant figure, despite a tendency to embonpoint, corrected, we read, by a comprehension of the art of corsetterie. All her lines are elegant, like her gestures, and no Parisienne ever fitted herself with skirts more clinging than the Collentais. The nose is just a trifle heavy, and the cheeks are pronounced rather than round. The neck and shoulders are perfect. The lady makes a physical impression of largeness rather than of solidarity. The hair seems more abundant than it is, possibly because it is so well-groomed. In a word, there is very little of the Russian student type in the aspect of this lady. She has the Frenchwoman's instinct for dress. Unfortunately, the socialist red is very becoming to her style of beauty. Unfortunately, says the Swiss Daily, for her attire often made more of a sensation than did even her bold opinions, which she never hesitated to set forth. All right, I have to stop here because even though I said I was going to read the whole thing, I'm just, I'm just appalled at this article so far because obviously this is trafficking in some of the worst stereotypes that you could imagine 
in the United States at this time. There, first, they suggest that she's a Jewish descent, which she is not. Um, she, they say that she's a witch, that she has a witch's eye. They basically say that um, she is has a tendency to be plump. That's this word. Uh, I'd actually had to look it up. Um, it, it's a it's a great word. Actually, I had I had never heard it before. Embonpoint, which means the condition of being plump or stoutness or exaggerated plumpness, rotundity of figure, a euphemism for fatness or fleshiness. So they um, they basically say that she's fat. They also say that she's hysterical, that her speeches are on the border of hysteria. Um, and they also say at the same time that she also has something oriental about her. So this is an American newspaper in 1918, basically going overboard with all of the stereotypes that you could imagine, negative stereotypes that readers in the United States would associate with somebody like Colin Ty, uh, this very powerful woman in this new worker state. So anyway, I just can't, um, I couldn't keep my mouth shut because I'm going through this and thinking, wow, they didn't, they, they hit all of the the words for, you know, negative associations with, with women, witches and hysterics and oriental and fat. And I mean, this is 1918, January, 1918. So it's amazing how little actually has changed. Anyway, back to the article. Madame Kollontai's gift for dress is no more remarkable to follow the Lausanne daily still than her rhetoric of revolution. She has what the Bolsheviki refer to as, quote, all the ideas, unquote. These include repudiation of national debts, confiscation of the fortunes of the rich, abolition of armies, end of dynasties, and collective ownership of the means of production and distribution. She calls herself a revolutionary socialist in Western Europe, but a Bolshevika in the East. It is useless to try to find out what Bolsheviki means, the lady told an English journalist, because the meaning of the word is discoverable only through what the Bolsheviki do. Quote, the Bolsheviki, she explained, means only what they do, unquote. The observation was emphasized with that graceful wave of the hand at the end of the long and delicate arm for which she is remarkable. There are times when the gestures and the dress and the accents of Madame Kollontai suggest that her past, quote, my miserable past, she calls it, must have embraced the films. But this is untrue. The lady, says the Swiss Daily, is artlessly cinematographic. Her very silence is dramatic, filled out with an incessant play of the large, deep, agitating eyes. When at last she speaks, the effect is all the more theatrical because of the quality of the voice. It is startling because it is so feminine, but it is never shriekingly feminine, never unmusical. It is very ladylike and cultivated indeed. To employ one of her own expressions, she cannot contemplate violence without a shudder. She repudiates the very idea. But how, asked an interviewer for the Daily already named, how were you to achieve the happiness of a whole people without resources? Madame lifted the wonderful eyes and waved the perfect arm. I will borrow from the rich, she declared, of the banks. 
But the rich, the banks, will not lend. Madame Kollontai smiled until her white teeth shone. Then she touched the interviewer caressingly on the arm and said in her wonderful whisper, a forced loan will do. You mean pillage then? Call it what you like. She shrugged those shoulders and laughed that laughed. It was her way of meeting all objections in the conferences. These are characteristics of the intelligentsia from the South, and those who know Russia say she must have come from the South. There could be no mistaking that accent, that build. She once taught school, it is said, in a village not far from the place in which lived the beautiful young Jewess who later became Madame Sukomlinov, with consequences so tragical. Like her former friend, Madame Kollontai speaks French and German fluently, and at the University for Women, she picked up much mathematics, history, and science. All right, so that's the 1918 article, Madame Kollontai, heroine of the Bolsheviki upheaval in Petrograd. And obviously, there is just so much going on in this. Now, clearly, most of the information in this article is false. Uh, they really don't know anything. Kollontai is not from the South. Uh, she's not of Jewish descent. Her name is not Fraulein Schwarzkopf. Um, she is clearly being portrayed as some kind of crazy seductress. Um, there are all these negative words about her, but she's also being sort of imagined as this sort of incredibly um, elegant and refined woman who doesn't at all meet people's expectations about what the Bolsheviks would be like at this period of time. And, and I do think it's really interesting how at the end, the interviewer sort of says, oh, you're going to basically pillage these banks. And she says, ha ha, call it what you like. We're going to get the money that we need to do the work that we need to do. Next to the headline on this page, there's a, a kind of a little snippet that says, she holds a cabinet portfolio, is 35, dresses like a Parisian, and does not believe in marriage. And of course, that last part is actually accurate. She did also dress like a Parisian. Uh, she also did hold a cabinet portfolio. But let's see, in 1918, Kalantai would have been 46 years old, not 35, as they imagined. And in fact, she's being clearly very circumspect about her age. And this American newspaper, which is based apparently on some Swiss dailies that they're drawing on, they say that she's 35, but she doesn't look 35. And in fact, she's 46. So I think there's something of an incredible allure around Kalantai in the Western media. The fact that she is so outspoken, the fact that she apparently has all this power, the fact that she's also very beautiful and refined and speaks all these languages. At the very end of the article, they mention that she does science, history, and mathematics. I mean, for an American reader in 1918, I imagine that this would have all seemed really preposterous for a woman to be in this really high position 
in government. Now, in fact, it's not true that she's part of a so-called triumvirate and that decisions are being made completely with her input. Obviously, Lenin has got other things going on. Trotsky is really much involved. And, and once the civil war starts, Kalantai actually eventually resigns from the Commissariat of, of Social Welfare and, and, and then does some work. And eventually, in, by 1920, after Inessa Armand dies, she becomes the head of the women's section of the Communist Party. But I think that it's really interesting to just note here how rare it must have been for newspapers to write about a woman in this high level of power. And what are they focusing on? They're not necessarily focusing on her ideas. And part of this, of course, is because I think they assume that she's a Bolshevik like the other Bolsheviks. And also in January 1918, they're probably not really sure what the Bolsheviks stand for in the Western press. It's so early on. Uh, But what they focus on is what she's wearing and the way she moves her hands and her abundant hair and her figure and all of the things that women politicians or women in positions of power are still dealing with all these years later, what you're wearing and how you present yourself. And it's just so fascinating to me that really nothing has changed. I think the other thing that's really really fascinating here is the insinuation of of Jewishness. They mention it at the very beginning that she's probably of Jewish descent. And then at the end, they emphasize again that she is probably from this village where apparently this other quote unquote, beautiful young Jewess was from. Uh, I actually looked up this woman, Madame Suhomlinov, and she was the wife of a Tsarist general who had been put to death for high treason during the First World War. And, you know, apparently this very tragic outcome of of her husband, who apparently was much older than she was, and she was also very refined and had a taste for furs and fancy clothes. So the anti-Semitism here is just so palpable that, and, and the fact that they say that she has this witch's eye Uh, The Italians say, quote unquote, a large, open, dark and flashing eye emitting something like a spark in moments of excitement. The idea that somehow she seduces her audiences, that somehow, you know, she's so incredibly powerful. It's really the kind of witchy ideology, right? That people are basically saying that she's there's something otherworldly about her. She's so beautiful. She's so well-dressed. She makes such a sensation with her bold clothes, even more than her bold opinions. She had to deal with all of these reports, probably constantly, of which I will read many. I've really had a lot of fun pulling out all of these articles. It took me a while to go through these databases, and and I've been collecting articles in multiple languages about her, because I do think it's really fun and and important to put Kalantai's work in the context of the culture in which she was living, in the international context in which she was living, in the context of the events of the day, because it's so easy to go back and retroactively read her as, you know, being somewhat conservative on some issues. But again, it's really important to understand that for her time, she was way out there and and very radical, particularly uh, as highlighted here. And the fact that she's divorced and she does not believe in marriage, which is an accurate thing. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy these new episodes. 
I'm going to try to post more regularly. My semester is almost over. And so I will have some time over the winter break, I hope, to record some more episodes to go back to read some of Colin Ty's work and give you some commentary. Maybe I'll be able to get a couple of interview guests on here. I might be able to dragoon my daughter into coming back on the show. But anyway, I want to thank you all so much, as always, for listening and keep up the good fight.